Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 296, recorded August 9th, 2022. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I'm Brian Aachen. Hey, Brian. We have a new sponsor. I just want to say thank you to Mozilla and the IRL podcast for sponsoring the show. Nice. Check them out at pythonbytes.fm slash IRL and more on that later. For now, I want to hear what you've discovered to share with us. Can you constrain your excitement? <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to talk about pip constraints. So there's a, uh, I, I think I knew about pip constraints, but I kind of forgot about them. But um, there's an article called Pip, pip Constraints Files by somebody named Luminousman. Um, uh, so this is what, so they're, they're kind of neat. So one of the things I was just using a, a pip requirements.in file recently um, in a course that I'm taking. Um, and I, I like rec using requirements.in to generate my requirements.txt file. Um, but there's, and then there's, there's a, yeah, anyway, um, that uses pip tools. So you have to get pip tools, but so there's that. And then there's also pinning. So if, especially with applications, um, we see it more in applications, less in, uh, less in libraries of pinning the application, but you can, even in libraries, there's a, there's regularly, uh, sort of constraints around stuff to say, um, hey, for this library, I need this this range of versions, or it has to be greater than this, or something, because I'm depending, and that's fine. But this is a way to say not what libraries I want to want to use, but if I use a library, which version? So, <laughs> or constraints okay. around the version without saying I want the library. So, and in the actually in the pip documentation. It says um, constraint files are requirement files that only control which version, not whether or not it's installed. So how would you use this? So um, this uh, this article talks about it, and it basically says you you kind of use it normally pip install requirements um, dot text, but you might have if you do like a freeze, for instance, or something, or you just pin everything, you might have all of the versions, but you might only want like uh, constraints on like one of them, say. Let's say you want you're you're including pandas, but you want a certain version of pandas, or or you want a certain version of NumPy, even though pandas requires NumPy or something like. That. You can have a constraints file that lists. Um, this just looks like a, a pip freeze file, but you can you can put like less than or less than equal if you want, or and you don't have to have everything, so you could just pin one of the things, and that way, like let's say you were doing pandas and you wanted to constrain NumPy to be a certain version of NumPy. You can do that with a constraints file and not have it uh, not have to specify everything, just have it be separate. And the kind of, the the article talks about actually just sticking the constraints specifying your constraint file within the requirements file, and that way they're separate. And and I was thinking about that, and that's an interesting thing to say. The dependencies of my application don't change, but the constraints might because of testing or whatever. And this this separating of these two files would help with like, you know, uh, when you have the two files of version control, you've changed your constraints, but you haven't changed really what you're depending on, just the versions of those. So it's kind of a neat to have that separate possibility. So yeah, so for people who are listening, literally the first line of the requirements.txt file is dash dash constraint constraints.txt, which I'd never considered doing that. That's interesting. And then one of the things I thought is but I'm not, and this works if you're handwriting your requirements file. But what if you're, what if you're not? What if you're, you're using uh, um, uh, requirements.in instead? And this article doesn't right. go into it. But I tried just instead of putting that constraint thing in a in a um, uh, 
requirements.txt file, putting it in a requirements.in and using um, pip compile to generate it. And it the pip compile seems to also watch the look at this. So it this constraint works for pip compile as well. Um, okay. So that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. So uh, kind of a neat thing to, to, to check out. Um, the usage of it's pretty easy. Uh, just, um, yeah. Anyway, uh, pinning your requirements is good, but don't pin them too tight if, uh, especially <laughs> for application for, for libraries and then right. for applications. Um, yeah, I kind of like this because there's a lot of times where I, I know there's a bug in something or I've heard about it or, it, or I haven't gotten around to fixing my code to deal with the new version yet. So I'm going to pin something, but I don't necessarily need to pin everything. I just need to pin certain parts of it. So that's kind of neat. So I like this, uh, just also a little bit of a sidebar with the pip compile from pip tools, you know, you give it the in file and it generates the TXT file and it basically obliterates the TXT file, whatever is there previously. Yeah. And that can be a hassle, especially if you want to have like a requirements dot dash dev and then a production requirements. And if you install the the dev the dev one, you want to also pick up like a dash R on the the main ones, and the pip tools blows that away. So what I ended up doing a lot for my workflows is having pip tools generate some base txt file, and then having like requirements.txt just have a dash R you know requirements production, and then the dev have dash R requirements.txt you know prod and like sort of like put those commands just in real simple and have it actually generate a separate file. So it kind of makes it a little bit messy, but it, it gives you lots of flexibility. Cool. Yeah. I'd yeah. like to see that yeah. written and, up. That's neat. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I should actually uh, blog something like in the last three years. <laughs> blog. Yeah. Uh, Pam, <laughs> yeah. What is that? Is that with words? Written words, not spoken words. Uh, Pamphlet on the audience says, does it take over requirements like if PIP would resolve NumPy to 1.19 and you say at 120? Um, it sounds to me like it does, but what do you think, Brian? Well, like I tried it uh, with uh, Typer. So I knew I know Typer pulls in uh, click, for instance, and they're both command line things. Yep. Um, and so then I said, okay, well, well the, it, Typer has a broad range of click things that it can do. And if I constrain click to be a lower number, will it work? And I blew everything away and tried it again. And, and sure enough, it, it did. It like add those extra constraints on top of even... Like, so I was, I was only declaring typer, but typer was specifying click and I could specify which version of click I wanted. So, yeah, this uh, is cool. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, I guess what adding one more com complexity to your packaging, uh, workflow. So, but, exactly. but useful but if you flexibility. Need yeah. Yes. Flexibility. Good, good flexibility. Yeah. All right. Well, let, I'll cover something simple. Async caching. <laughs> simple. <laughs> <laughs> it is simple in a sense. Uh, okay. We've had, we have some nice stuff built into Python, like async, uh, sorry, with like func tools uh, and the LRU cache and whatnot. But from what I understand, those are synchronous only. Basically, they're decorators, those decorators wrap functions, and the decorators themselves are synchronous. And so it only makes sense for them to wrap sync functions. Yeah. Okay. And so if you have an async function, but you want to do the LRU cache where you just put the decorator LRU cache, and then if it gets called with the same arguments, again, it doesn't even call the function. It just goes, you know what? You already called it with that. Here's the answer. So like if you're in a tight loop and you're pulling in some values and you got to compute something with it through a function, but there's a good chance of repeat of those values, you can put an LRU cache and as long as that pretty deterministic and you call it again, you expect the same output, you can make it fly by just adding one of those caches on it, right? So uh, short version of this is, this is the same idea, but for 
uh, async functions. So I can have some function I want to call and I just say at LRU cache and this one you can give it a maximum size of results that it's willing, you know, inputs and re matched up results it's willing to cache up. And then if you call it with the same arguments, it'll give the same uh, response back. So that's pretty cool. That's the uh, sort of last used version. And then you also have time to live, a time to live, an async TTL. So you can say any results, I don't care. Uh, how many I've, I've used, but just within the last 60 seconds. And one thing that's really, really nice about that is it will expire results. So maybe you're calling an API and you want to do rate limiting, but you know you only want to be uh, call it maybe once a minute, right? That'll both make your code faster, but also not overrun your rate limiting that you might have with your API key and so on. Hmm. So here's a real simple way to add rate limiting is just say time to live. I guess you got to have the same input arguments, but you know, assuming that you have the same arguments, uh, that's that's one way to do it. And you can also specify the max size, which is pretty cool. Yeah, or if you're grabbing something off of a service, like uh, what's the like uh, what's the temperature out? Um, exactly. I don't really care if it fluctuates every second, but every minute I might check it, um, sort of thing. Um, yep, yep, precisely. Um, and I don't. There's not a conversion, all those kind of things. So there's not a TTL on the normal LRU cache, is there? I I don't believe so. Yeah, no. so that's actually cool. I, I like it the time cool. to live part. Yeah, I do too. I like that. That really resonates with me. The other thing that's pretty cool here is you can pass ORM objects, you can pass request objects, you can pass custom classes. Even if the classes are not hashable, it mm. will still go through and actually... So one of the problems you can run into is if you pass, say if you've got a customer object or a product object or something... You call it once, you've created this object, maybe you got it from the database, and you say, call the function with the LRU cache, and it says, well, what object is this? Have I seen it before? And maybe yes or no. Oh. And then you call it again. Uh, it might have the same effective value, but it's not actually the same object. Right? You might get it from the database again, so it has a different pointer, a different ID, and so on. That hmm. um, I'm not sure what the, the behavior there is, but this one will actually uh, look and see, oh, is it actually a class well then let's just get the dictionary and use the dictionary the, the underlying field dictionary of the class to use as the the match to see if i'm okay. calling it again so there's some really cool uh functionality here simple little class but if you want to quickly add some performance boost async functions you can add this oh nice okay this is neat yeah 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 it's, it's fine neat. also yeah thanks also it's entirely possible i I don't think it does, but it's entirely possible to add uh, async and synchronous support to a single decorator uh, if if you need to, right? Um, for example, I have the, what was it called? The chameleon templates, um, fast API one that I created. Let's see, look at that. Number one result, what a search search thing. So there's, <laughs> so there's this fast API chameleon framework or library that I created that allows you to just do a decorator and say dot template and put a HTML template in the chameleon language on a fast API response. And it returns a dictionary and that just turns it into an HTML response. Okay. This one in fast API, you can both have synchronous and asynchronous functions. So this thing has to look and see if the inbound thing is a coroutine and async coroutine, and it will dynamically generate the right wrapper an async one or a synchronous one. Based wow. on. So it's not super hard. It's it's also not super easy, but I did it, so it, it can be done. <laughs> cool. Oh, anyway, cool. Uh, that's a little bit of a diversion. But this this async cache versus a non-async cache, I feel like you know it could just be 
it could be one thing if it really, really wanted to be. But I feel like the person who created it probably is just like, I need this for async methods. Let's go. Yeah. It's almost kind of too bad that the normal oil or cache doesn't just do that. Anyway. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it's been updated too, and I don't know. <laughs> but yeah. I don't believe it does. I don't think so, right? Not currently. Yeah. So. Yeah, not that I know of. People can write us if we're wrong, and we'll, we'll uh, let people know next time. It'd be great to, great to do it. I am All never right. wrong. Oh, yeah. Okay, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and because like I said, it's because it's a decorator, like you could you could make it start working that way. That's a yeah. good, good feature to add. Cool. All right, before yeah, before we move on, Brian, let me tell you about AI in real life. Wow. Okay? Yeah. So this week's sponsor, this episode of Python Bytes, is brought to you by the IRL podcast, an original podcast from Mozilla. So thank you, IRL and Mozilla, for supporting the show. If you're like us. You care about the ideas behind technology and not just the tech itself. Obviously, we do a podcast on these things all the time. So we love talking about it, thinking about it. And everyone out there knows that tech has an enormous influence on society. Many of the, these effects are hugely beneficial. Just, you know, you think about walking around with your cell phone. You have basically the entire sum of human knowledge just constantly with you. Other influences can have, you know, negative effects. And I really appreciate that Mozilla is always looking out for and working to mitigate these types of negative influences tech has on all, this, all of us. So if these ideas resonate with you, you should definitely check out their podcast, IRL, the IRL podcast. It's hosted by Bridget Todd. And in this season, IRL looks at AI in real life. Hmm. Who can AI help? Who can it harm? The show features fascinating conversations with people who are working to build more trustworthy AI. So just some of the examples of episodes. There's an episode about how our world is mapped, like Google Maps style mapped with AI. and What's really interesting is the data that's missing from those maps tells as much of the story as the data that's there. So also an episode about gig workers who depend on apps for their livelihood. And it looks at how they're pushing back against algorithms that control how much they get paid, seeking new ways to gain power and autonomy over data and creating better working conditions. And finally, for political junkies, there's an episode on the role that AI plays when it comes to the spread of disinformation around elections, a huge concern oh, yeah. for democracies. You, know, you hear a lot about the US democracies, but more broadly, absolutely, across the world. And I just listened to their first episode, The Tech That We Won't Build, which explores when developers and data scientists should consider saying no to projects that can be harmful or you know, strongly against their beliefs, even though, sure, you could technically build them, you know, you, just because you can, you know, should, should you. Anyway, if this sounds like an interesting show, try an episode for yourself. Just search for IRL in your podcast player or visit pythonbytes.fm slash IRL. Links in your podcast player show notes. And thank you to IRL and Mozilla for supporting our show. Thank you, Strong. Yes, thanks. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about organizing your code to actually uh, organizing your Python code kind of structure structuring projects and everything but uh there's more than that so i ran across this uh, article called organize python code like a pro and yes it's got a lot of great advice and it's opinionated it's by one person of course but but i think it's uh it's for the most part really good stuff and also um uh, a couple of things that I don't normally see in these kinds of articles and there's not too much weird stuff. So, uh, <laughs> sometimes it's a little, sometimes it's a little too opinionated, but this is obviously where you can see where some of the opinions, uh, are hold, held. So, uh, take a look at, um, it talks about structuring your project. Uh, for instance, one of the first things is use a source directory, SRC. Um, and so I try to do this and I used to do it because there was a, there was an article about um, 
about having your tests be seen. So basically, if I if I'm doing a pack installable package, I'd like to have my tests see the installed package, not the the local files. And um, that happens sometimes if you're running, like say, PyTest or unit test from the top level directory, and it might it might see the top level module and you don't want it to. So source is a way to hide that. But there's ways to get around that in testing. So um, I don't I don't really. It's not really a solid, solid argument as it used to be. This argument really is just, it looks nice um, in your, in your code editor that you, uh, if you, if you like, here's an example of a non, uh, uh, a non-source project where you have a couple modules within the project and, but alphabetically they fall below, they're around your, your, you've got your test directory and your pyproject.toml and your source codes on both top and bottom of that. That's confusing. So I actually kind of love this simple argument of just combine all the source in one place. It's nice. Uh, so they, I do like that too. <laughs> I know the 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 first reaction to this though is you're going to put a package level directory anyway, and having a package level directory in there instead of your if you have a package instead of uh, this you know source or something that works too. But anyway, this is kind of interesting. The one thing that that kind of gets me and it shows up here is this uh, this. This author is considering what I so we have a problem in Python of what a what a package is. A package is something I install from PyPI, but it's also within this Python documentation. Sometimes it's just a directory with an init file in it. Um, uh, I don't know how you so Python or Michael, you teach people about that. Do you ever like do, do you stumble with this part or just? Both seems complicated and and overly simplistic for me. I think one of the challenges really I often run into is. How do I organize my files if I want like a submodule? Oh, yeah. I want simple import statements, you know. So okay. So you do know, you think you of don't have yeah? Go ahead. Do you think of directories with stuff directories within a net as a module or as a package or uh, do you use? Do you, I, I do, but often I I try to dodge that bullet and just not not talk about not it. really get <laughs> yeah. Well, honestly, not talk about it. If you're building a library, this matters very very much. If you're building an application, a web app, or a CLI app, or something. It often it doesn't matter because you're just running the top level, some top level like main or app.py or something, and it it'll just pick it up whether it's a, a module or you know a package or just a directory. So I guess um, regardless of like what we call directories, whether we call them modules or packages, this this uh, article calls them modules. So then it goes on to talk about some other cool stuff. Let's let's go down. Naming things. So it, it talks about that there's really no files. There's uh, there's modules. So uh, it also, also there's no directories. They're all modules, but the, that, that's okay. So this is some of the opinion stuff that you can, it's interesting, you can skip over it. But the, the, the thing that I thought was interesting is these module names, they should be, um, uh, they could be plural names. And I never thought about that. And it, it kind of makes sense. Uh, like if you have, uh, I don't know, it gives an example. Like drivers, drivers would be a module. Yeah, you'd probably be the S on there makes sense. So it's a you know keep a keep config and main as as single. But um, most things have an S on the end. I never really thought about that before, but it does make sense. Of like uh, from crawler storages import git storage or something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's just a nice little extra thing. Uh, and then talks about naming functions and and stuff. Um, so functions, uh, I this is something people get wrong all the time. So uh, it's good to talk about it. Name your functions with verbs. It makes your code a lot clearer if your functions or methods are verbs. 
And even, unless you have to jump through giant hoops to make it work. But if you have to jump through giant hoops to make a verb work, maybe it's not really one function. Maybe it should be two or three, but we'll see. Anyway. Yeah. Or a property instead of a, yeah. a function. Or, or a property. Yeah. Right. Uh, and then class names. One of the things I never thought about also was class names should be um, uh, singular. So classes should be singular unless it's a, unless it's really a container. So don't name don't name a class orders because it's going to describe multiple orders. It's it's an order. It's an order class, not an orders class. So that's a I, that's a good thing. The the one of the things I loved about this uh, article also is there's two things that. We kind of talk about we use a lot, but nobody. It, I don't think very many people talk about it too much. And well, it's the Dunder init thing. I'm gonna pop down the not the the Dunder name equals Dunder main. That's used all the time, um, and so it's good to talk about that. Of if you want to execute a module itself, use that. But the if you one of the things I tried to do recently that I kind of didn't know how to do right off the bat is a directory with an init. If it also has a Dunder main, then you can use the dash m. Uh, thing on it uh so if you include like dunder main then you can use uh like a a python dash m module name uh, when you're interesting so okay uh and uh, because i had a um i had a library i was working with and it was like i'm i'm using dash m for everything else i'd like to have the entry point for my application be usable if i do dash m also um how do i do that and this is how you do it so it's kind of neat to have this in right away because I don't know if it's really a beginner thing, but it's still kind of cool. So. Yeah, I like it a lot. It's like entry points, but simpler. Yeah. Um, anyway, so decent decent article. Uh, there's some some opinions there, but that's okay. We like opinions. Absolutely. So. <laughs> we do, we do. All right. Well, do you know what else we like, Brian? Follow-up. Uh, yay! I was going to do this. So, I'm so, glad you're doing it. Not too late. I grabbed it. I grabbed it because this one is a good one. So remember last week you spoke about CLI apps and doing OAuth and you've got to remember the tokens you get. The example you gave was from Twitter, but it could be from all over the place. So Trent, we got uh, multiple pieces of feedback. One about encrypting the stuff that goes into your user profile. I can't remember who, but I apologize about forgetting the name, but someone sent in a message that says, well, the AWS CLI just puts your (laughs) tokens straight there unencrypted. So there's that. Mm. Um, I said, maybe you should encrypt them somehow. And I agree with that uh, still, but Trent sent in this, project called Keyring. And Keyring is Keyring or Vault, Vaults, those types of things. They're ways, sort of more um, managed central stores of this type of information, right? On macOS, you hear, uh, and it put it in your OS X keychain, right? You probably have heard that, or the Windows credential store, or those those things that the actual operating system is protecting from other apps to go look at it, but it's basically just encrypted yeah. login, password, or or tokens yeah so this keyring thing that suggested was is something like that but it works it's a python library it works across platform and it works with different backends based on both what platform you're on and other things you might decide so it's um, a library that gives you access to system keyring services from python which i think is fantastic so on mac os that's keychain on um, linux it's the secret service or the KDE 4 and 5K wallets. And then on Windows, it's the Windows Credential Locker. Okay. Right. And so in there, you can just call um, set password and get password, and off it goes. And that's pretty much it, right? But it's stored in a nice encrypted, not just encrypted, but protected access uh, way for your OS. 
Yeah, so I actually forgot about this. Um, we, I actually use this for testing uh, all the time, but I never thought, I didn't think about using it for a command line application. Um, Interesting. So okay, it does, how do you use it, it for testing? So we have, um, so some of the issues are we have we have uh, uh, different devices that we're testing against that are password protected devices. And so you have, in order to, to access them, you need a, a login and password um, to run run commands against them. And then, so to be able to do that, um, uh, we need the, like if you're SSHing into something or something like that, as part of your process, uh, you've got to, you've got to, you have to have those credentials somewhere and we don't want them in our source code. Uh, that's the gist of it is, is we don't want them. We don't want them, uh, just to, to be, yeah, we don't want them in the source code and checked in to GitLab and to have the whole company be able to read them. Um, it, it's still protected. It's internal thing, but maybe you're on GitLab uh, um, or Git, GitHub or something, and it's it's a public repo. You don't want your passwords right there, but you can have them stored on your local machine and then pull them out with the keyring. Um, right. It surprised me a little bit that they're just that Git passwords a thing. I kind of expected it to be like a like get the uh, get the password hash or something. But I have to remember this isn't this isn't verifying passwords. It's having them to be able to send them to another system. Uh, so right. Kinda, and ideally that one is storing the hash, not the real thing. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if it would work. See. So I don't know if this would be, uh, this is still cool and I'm glad we're covering it, but I was, my original question was around, is this a re what's a reasonable thing to store passwords for sessions for a command line application? And I don't know if keyring would work, but I haven't tried it yet. And maybe if you have a set password, maybe it will work. Maybe it stores something locally. So I'll have to try it out. I, yeah, I think that it will. Okay. The question that I was wondering is what about the get password? You know, is that restricted to the process that put it in there? Or yeah. Or is it anything running on the system? Start, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Can you just start arbitrarily asking for stuff? Probably some restrictions there, but I don't know exactly what they are. Hemphill hmm. uh, out in the audience says, I'm not mistaken, Poetry is using the, it's, it's installed. So that's where your PyPI credentials get installed. And oh. you can check out issue 210 from Poetry. And down here somewhere says, um, they talk about ways in which you could store. <laughs> and it says, why not just make Keyring a dependency? Okay. Yeah. It, if this approach, why not simply make keyring and and so on? And so, yeah, it talks about um, basically using this to store your PyPI credentials. And that's a CLI app. Perfect, then. We have, we have It sounds like example. a pretty good match. Yeah, yeah nice, nice little example. Yeah, you can just follow along what they're doing there. So thank you, Penfield, for pointing that out. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, I don't currently have any use for this. I think it might be useful even outside of I have this interactive application, for example, storing secrets. You know, if you want yeah. to have the database connection string to your app, right? This might be a good way to do it. Uh, and one other thing that's interesting is you can have third-party backends. So you could have just encrypted text files. You could have yeah. um, the Dbus API for Linux. Um, Google Sheets, I don't know about this, but uh, <laughs> it does say for use with IPython secrets, so maybe it encrypts them. But more uh, realistically, we've talked about Bitwarden before, uh, open source password manager which is really nice. I use that for a few things. Okay. And so that has a CLI aspect. You could have Bitwarden as a backend. Uh, you can write your own as well. And 1Password 
has a CLI option as well for storing SSH keys even. So you could even put your SSH keys in there and whatnot. I don't know if this would pull it back correctly, but there's a lot of uh, ways to store things and say one password and then access it with a CLI. And maybe you could plug this in. So just it's another provider, which is cool. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, seems really nice to me. And uh, if I have a use for it, I'll definitely look into it more. Yeah. Cool. Nice. Yep. All right. Hey, that might be all of our topics for the day, huh? I think so. Yeah. So extras? you got any extras? Yeah, I just, I just wanted to say that I am, uh, I'm working on a couple things. I'm editing my PyTest course, of course, uh, still working on that. Um, but mm-hmm. the other thing that I just started, which I'm super excited about is I just started taking a fast API course. Oh yeah. It's really neat. The instructor's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. No. Yeah. Thank you. That, yeah. That's the fast API course, this live course that I'm doing this week and next week, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm taking it from Michael. And uh, if anybody, if anybody is, if you've never taken a, taken one of the online courses with Michael or a live course, uh, it's just really excellent. He's a good instructor. So it's good. Thank you very much. Yeah. I love it. We're having a, a good time just playing with code as a group. Yeah. How about I you? Have, I have, I think I have some extras just really quickly here. Um, Brian Skin, who's been a co-host before sent us a tweet and said, attention Python bytes. And that went over to uh, this message from Jeff, Jeff Huntley. And it says, uh, GitLab, are you all right? <laughs> and this is uh, linking to an article from the register. It says, GitLab plans to delete dormant projects in free accounts, hoping to save a quarter of the hosting costs by binning repos that haven't been touched for a year. Thanks. Is that, that's a little nerve wracking because just because it hasn't been changed doesn't mean it's not Used. useful. Yeah. Yes. Huh. Maybe I keep so, my recipes up there and I haven't added any recipes lately. <laughs> yeah, maybe nothing's changed or whatever. So a yeah. uh, couple of things. Uh, PSA, if you have a GitLab, GitLab project, you know, ba- maybe just touch, just add a, a period to some hex file or something and check that in. Or Spam your own repo a... with like uh, trivial PRs. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Definitely. I fixed this misspelling here by changing the word <laughs> and the more... Uh, oh, Mario Munoz says they may be reverting this. Okay, so okay. this was just from four or five days ago. Yeah, okay. And Panfield says, yes, they did. Okay, well, okay. it sounds Never like mind. they had the same, They many people had the same reaction that we are going, oh boy, this seems like a bad idea. <laughs> seems like I'm glad idea. this was changed. Yeah, uh, Panfield says, because of the huge backlash. I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> All right, yeah. well, I guess they'll have to continue to pay their million dollars extra per year to host things that people put up on there where they said they would host it. Yeah, well, hopefully they, okay. Even if you did that, hopefully they would like email people at least. Hopefully your current yeah, emails exactly. there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Kind of like Google Voice. Please log in with the next, within the next 30 days to keep your phone number or whatever it is they always did to me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, with that, I think uh, brings us to some jokes. You got some jokes to tell and I brought a quick one as well. Okay. You want to go first? Uh, sure. I'm I'm not going to read the ones up, up here, but I got them. I got a couple jokes from a place called, uh, from a GitHub repo. That's a dad style programming jokes, which is perfect for me. So uh, I got a couple. Um, how do programming pirates pass method parameters? I don't know. With Varargs. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay. Second one. Um, uh, how do you get code? How do you get the code of your bank vault? Like, so you can break into the I bank. I know. Mm. You check out their branch. Oh. This is bad. <laughs> nice. So, I love it. And then uh, I, one of the things I liked on the top of this, it says, unfortunately, these jokes only work if you get them uh, bad. Oh, so good. And it's a GitHub repo. So that's actually it's fitting. So anyway. It's very uh, self-referential. Very meta. 
Okay. How about you? Uh, here's a quick one before I put it up on screen. You know how there's this constant not built here syndrome? Like, sure, this key ring is cool, but did we build it? No, I bet we could build a better key ring than that. And like, we'll get a team together to build key ring, right? So here's a picture of uh, normal people acting like developers. So there's these two construction workers with their hard hats on, and there's a screwdriver with a $2 tag on it because it was just purchased. And one guy's outraged. What? Did you buy a screwdriver instead of building your own from scratch? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Pretty good. What? You're using Hugo? Why didn't you build your own <laughs> blog engine? <laughs> exactly. First, I'm going to build my own markdown parser so I can have better tables. Let's go. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, indeed. So. All right. Well, excellent podcast as always. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. And thank you everyone for listening, watching, however you've been part of this. Yeah. Thanks a lot.